Blog Talk Radio. Black Abolitionists by Benjamin Quarles. Continued. Cassette 6, Side 1. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom and Space. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. With the coming of the new abolitionists after 1830, the use of the petition reached flood proportions. To put his name down on a long sheet of paper under a statement condemning slavery became second nature to a new school abolitionist, even to a follower of Garrison who decried such political activity as voting or holding office. The massive abolition petition against slavery began in 1835, and, it is hardly necessary to add, with the full backing of the black abolitionists. Three years earlier, the Massachusetts General Colored Association, meeting in Boston, had voted to send a petition to Congress to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. During the following spring, at two meetings held at the African Masonic Hall in Boston, Maria W. Stewart gave an analysis of the Negro's problem and suggested a step for its solution. Most of our color, she said, have been taught to stand in fear of the white man from their earliest infancy to work as soon as they can walk, and call master before they could scarce lisp the name of mother. What should be done about changing things? Let every man sign a petition to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia and grant you the rights and privileges of common citizens. A few weeks later, on June 16, 1833, a petition was drafted in the name of 1,200 Negroes of Providence, Rhode Island, and sent to Andrew Jackson. Reminding the chief executive of his commendation of the Negro troops under him at the Battle of New Orleans in January 1815, the Providence Negroes urged Jackson to free the slaves in the District of Columbia and in the territories of Arkansas and Florida, and entreated him not to forget the million of our brethren and sisters still in slavery. Hundreds of abolitionist petitions were directed against the annexation of the Republic of Texas, which had won its independence from Mexico in 1836. If Texas came into the Union, it would come in, as abolitionists well knew, as a slave state. The New York Vigilance Society was one of the Negro groups that opposed the annexation. At the Broadway Tabernacle on August 1, 1837, the Society opened a booth at which passers-by could sign a petition against the admission of Texas and against slavery in the district. A year earlier, at its first annual meeting, the American Moral Reform Society had gone on record as opposing Texas annexation. They had also thanked John Quincy Adams for having fought to maintain the right to petition irrespective of color or condition. Although himself not an abolitionist, Adams had become an admired figure among them as a consequence of his fight against the gag rule. First passed in the House of Representatives in May 1836, this was a measure declaring that all petitions relating to slavery should be laid on the table, not sent to a committee and reported back, as was customary. In 
This measure backfired, however, since it struck at a basic constitutional right. Abolitionists became more petition-minded than ever, and Adams became their chief means of transmission, presenting petition after petition, despite the threats of his House colleagues to censure or expel him. One of the largest petitions ever reaching the Washington office of Congressman Adams was an immense roll of paper, about the size of a barrel. It bore 51,862 signatures, headed by the name George Latimer. A runaway slave from Norfolk, Virginia, Latimer had been arrested and placed in a Boston jail in October 1842. Abolitionists and Negroes rallied to his defense, attempting to have him released by a writ of habeas corpus. When this proved unsuccessful, the abolitionists held a mass meeting at Faneuil Hall on October 30th, followed by a series of Latimer meetings throughout the state. I have never known people so aroused before, wrote Samuel E. Sewell, legal counsel for Latimer and one of the speakers at the Faneuil Hall gathering. To coordinate the abolitionist protest, a Latimer committee was appointed, made up of Henry I. Bowditch, William F. Channing, and Frederick Cabot. This trio brought out a weekly, the Latimer Weekly and North Star. Another committee operation was the promotion of two monster petitions, one to the state legislature and another to the national legislature. The Great Massachusetts Petition, calling for a state law forbidding the use of public property or the services of public officials in the detention or arrest of any alleged fugitive. The Great Petition to Congress asked that such laws or amendments be passed as would separate the people of Massachusetts from all connection with slavery. The two Latimer petitions won the full support of Negroes. Indeed, five months before Latimer was arrested, a group of Boston Negroes had pledged themselves to draft a petition to the incoming state legislature which would prohibit citizens and officials of Massachusetts from aiding slaveholders in seizing and returning fugitives. They also unanimously agreed to petition Congress to repeal the Fugitive Slave Law of 1793. Late in November, at a meeting held at the Belknap Street Baptist Church, a Negro gathering protested the imprisonment of Latimer and pledged themselves to support the two petitions being circulated by the Latimer Committee. At Hartford's Fifth Congregational Church on November 17, 1842, the Reverend J. W. C. Pennington delivered a sermon on the Latimer case, covenants involving moral wrong not obligatory upon man. Don't let Charles Dickens hear of the Latimer case, pleaded Pennington, lest he write an addendum to his Notes on America. If the Latimer case did not reach international proportions, it was due to the uneasiness of James B. Gray, the owner of Latimer. Surprised by the depth of feeling which the case aroused throughout New England, and fearful of the countercharges launched by Latimer's legal advisers, Gray decided to sell him for $400. The abolitionists were highly pleased at this turn of events, but they did not propose to abandon their petition drive. By mid-February 1843, the two petitions were delivered to their respective destinations. The petition to the Massachusetts legislature, bearing 64,526 signatures and weighing 150 pounds, was delivered at the State House on February 17, 1843, by Charles Francis Adams. Five weeks later, the legislature passed a measure dubbed by the delighted abolitionists as the Latimer Statute, 
because it was so closely modeled after their petition. A similar fate eluded the companion petition that went to John Quincy Adams in Washington. This petition shared a common graveyard with such previous stillborns as the one from nine Negro women in Fredericksburg, Virginia, presented by Adams in February 1837, the petition from New York Negroes in June 1838, protesting against the treatment of American colored seamen in Cuba, and the petition by Boston Negroes in October 1842, bitterly complaining about the treatment given to black sailors in five southern states. But if such petitions got nowhere, it was not the fault of those presenting them, and John Quincy Adams continued to receive expressions of high esteem from Negroes. His death in 1848, four years after the repeal of the gag rule, was widely mourned by Negroes. Commemorative meetings were held by colored people in Detroit, Cincinnati, Buffalo, New York, and Philadelphia. Adams had never been a professing abolitionist, and his bald and pot-bellied exterior hardly cast him in a heroic mold. But to Negroes he was a fearless advocate of the rights of man, and this was a breed none too numerous, as their experience had taught them. To the various state legislatures in the North came petitions from Negro residents. As a rule, these memorials dealt with discriminatory measures, impending or already enacted, against colored people. These petitions had one other thing in common. Their instigators were almost invariably active abolitionists. For example, the 11-page memorial sent to the Pennsylvania Assembly in March 1832, protesting against a proposed bill severely limiting Negro migration to Pennsylvania, was planned at a meeting at which James C. McCrummel was chairman and Jacob C. White was secretary. The petition was worded by three men of equal reputation as black abolitionists, James Fortin, Robert Purvis, and William Whipper. In their petitions to state legislatures, then, Negroes were not addressing themselves solely to local or internal grievances. They were at the same time leveling their pieces at much bigger game, the jungle king of slavery. Abolitionists found that political activity brought some gains, but it had its limitations. Petitions were of little good unless they were followed up. Voting for a winning candidate did not ensure the desired legislation, and even the law itself, particularly a new law, often turned out to be less binding than social and economic pressures. These strong pressures came to the fore in American life with a compelling urgency in the 1850s, and with a twist that was not wholly surprising, they made their debut with a law relating to fugitive slaves. Chapter 9. Protests New Prophets Thursday, May 25, 1854. Did not intend to write this evening, but another fugitive from bondage has been arrested like a criminal in the streets. Diary of Charlotte Fortin It was the first time this October 5, 1850, at 12 noon, that New York Negroes had ever held a meeting in the public park. But then there had never been so large a black audience or so deeply moving an occasion. Five thousand people had gathered to welcome home a fellow New Yorker who had been gone hardly a week. Moreover, he was dressed as a laborer, and hence could hardly have been a community leader or member of the black elite. But when the thirty-year-old porter stood up, after being introduced by the presiding officer, the audience cheered with deafening effect, drowning out the sobbing and the crying, 
some of which came from the guest of honor himself. For this man was a fugitive slave, James Hamlet, who had been seized on the streets of New York nine days earlier. Hamlet had offered as his defense the fact that he was a free man, having entitled himself to his freedom. But his line of reasoning lacked admissible legal precedent. In fact, the testimony of an alleged fugitive was invalid by law. Hence, Hamlet had been arrested and returned to his Baltimore mistress. A few days later, New York Negroes held a mass meeting at Mother Zion Church, with many whites present, for the purpose of raising enough money to buy Hamlet. Amid great enthusiasm, the purchase price of $800 was raised, one Negro, Isaac Hollenbeck, starting things off with a donation of $100. Now Hamlet was home again, no longer melancholy, but restored to his family, friends, and job. Standing before the gathering in the park, Hamlet waved his dampened handkerchief while a bevy of women gathered around his wife and child. Such kissing and crying never were seen, wrote a contemporary. When things quieted down, there were speeches by William P. Powell, Charles B. Ray, John Peter Thompson, and Robert Hamilton. But there was none from Hamlet, his heart too full. He is a free man. That is a speech itself, explained Hamilton. The exercises closed with the singing of a hymn, and then Hamlet was hoisted in the air and borne on shoulders through the park and to his home. The Hamlet case was hardly a victory over slavery. For, as William P. Powell had remarked, it was brought about not by the irresistible genius of universal emancipation, but by the irresistible genius of the almighty dollar. What gave the Hamlet case its dramatic impact was its timing. It took place a week after President Fillmore had signed into law a measure that shook the North, its subject, the fugitive slave. One of five measures known collectively as the Compromise of 1850 the fugitive slave law provoked an unprecedented hue and cry. The law denied both the testimony of the alleged runaway and his right to a trial by jury, and it assumed his guilt rather than his innocence. Such a measure could have been swallowed by Congress only because it was part of a package, for it violated the basic concepts of American law and the procedural guarantees of the Constitution. Hence, it recharged the emotional slavery debate greatly widening the breach between the sections. In the North, the measure was condemned and defied, and in the South, this condemnation and defiance was regarded as an act of bad faith. The fugitive slave law gave to the abolitionists a weapon which they would exploit to the hilt. In this chorus of condemnation, no voices were louder than those of the Negro. But long before the abolitionist attack could reach its full proportions, Many runaway slaves living in the North had decided to take to the road again, this time to Canada. The law was ex post facto, reaching back to fugitives who had almost forgotten that they had not always been free. Former runaways feared that the law might be enforced, a view sustained in some legal quarters that were friendly to the slave. Upon passage of the law, George T. Downing and William P. Powell had written William J., asking his advice on its constitutionality and binding force. The former judge had little for their comfort. You ask me how you shall secure yourselves from the kidnapper. God only knows. Jay urged the Negroes not to turn to violence, to leave the pistol and the bowie knife to southern ruffians and their northern mercenaries. 
a group of New York Negroes sought the advice of another friendly figure, Congressman Thaddeus Stevens of Pennsylvania, as to the constitutionality of the new law. Stevens replied that he had little hope that the measure would not be upheld by the federal courts. Hence, he could advise nothing better than the subjects of it put themselves beyond its reach. Many fugitive slaves, apprehensive of their freedom in the land of the fugitive slave law, made ready to take their departure. The black exodus touched every northern city with more than a handful of Negroes. This embraced even Boston, with its tradition of challenging unpopular laws and defying the official charge with enforcing them. Forty former slaves bade farewell to Boston within sixty hours after the fugitive slave bill became law. The city's colored churches were particularly hard hit. The African Methodist Church lost eighty-five members, and the much smaller Zion Methodist Church lost ten. The First Baptist Church lost forty of its one hundred twenty-five enrollees. The congregation of the Twelfth Baptist Church quickly dwindled from one hundred forty-one to eighty-one, and two of its deacons were retained only because the members had raised thirteen hundred dollars to buy their freedom. Some of these departees to Canada were relatives of runaways, and a few might have been free-born Negroes who felt jeopardized. But in Boston, as elsewhere, the fugitive slave law revealed that the number of runaways was greater than most people would have thought. For members taking flight, the churches in upstate New York could match those in Boston. The Baptist Colored Church of Buffalo lost 130 members after the pastor told the congregation that he found gospel precedent for running away, but none that warranted fighting. At the Colored Baptist Church of Rochester, the Kentucky-born pastor was the first to quit the city, and he was soon followed by 112 members of his flock, leaving two behind. At Pittsburgh, a group of 200 Negroes left for Canada a few days before the signing of the Fugitive Slave Law. They carried firearms, having vowed that they would die before being taken back into slavery. Pittsburgh lost an additional 800 Negroes, over half of whom were relatives of runaways. Another Pennsylvania city, Columbia, lost 487 of its 943 Negroes during the five-year span after the passage of the law. William Whipper assisted many of the Canada-bound emigrants, helping them to sell such possessions as they could not carry, particularly houses and real estate. At both Columbia and Pittsburgh, a runaway who had been taken into custody was purchased by Negroes, Whipper heading the effort of Columbia and John B. Vachon at Pittsburgh. To most Negroes, outright defiance was a more emotionally satisfying response to the fugitive slave law than flight outside the country or raising money to pay a master. Hence, Negroes throughout the North held anti-fugitive slave law meetings. On October 2, 1850, some 1,500 black New Yorkers jammed into the Zion Chapel for a protest meeting. The presiding officer, William P. Powell, set the tone in a series of opening questions. You are told to submit peacefully to the laws. Will you do so? No, no. You are told to kiss the manacles that bind you. Will you do so? No, no, no. Other speakers took up this refrain, which was reaffirmed by the formal resolutions utterly repudiating a law so repugnant to every principle of justice. Before the meeting adjourned, two petitions condemning the law were circulated, one to the state legislature and the other to Congress. 
A week later, the Negroes of Elmira vowed that they would defy the fugitive slave law at the sacrifice of their lives. Negroes elsewhere voiced similar sentiments. Ten days after the fugitive slave law went into operation, a group of Pittsburgh Negroes held a meeting at the public square. They condemned the Pennsylvania congressman who had supported the slave bill, which they declared to be a deadly blow at liberty. The most stirring remarks came from Martin R. Delaney, who said that he hoped that the ground would refuse his body if a slaveholder crossed his threshold and he did not lay him a lifeless corpse at his feet. An even more impassioned statement came from Robert Purvis, presiding at the annual meeting of the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society at Westchester on October 17, 1850. His eyes flashing, Purvis declared that, Should any wretch enter my dwelling, any pale-faced specter among ye, to execute this law on me or mine, I'll seek his life, I'll shed his blood. Parker Pillsbury, deeply moved by the outburst, wrote that the fugitive slave law was revealed in all its horror when it could move a man like Purvis to such extremity. Negroes elsewhere shared the defiant mood of Delaney and Purvis. New York Negroes held a meeting which sanctioned forcible resistance to the fugitive slave law, the chairman appointing a committee to assist endangered runaways. Less than a week after the passage of the measure, a large and enthusiastic group of Negroes met at Quinn Chapel in Chicago and proceeded to organize the Liberty Association. Forty-two men, working in teams, were to patrol the city, spying for possible slave hunters. At Zanesville, Ohio, a group of Muskingum County Negroes met in November 1850 and formally declared that if they heard of anyone being arrested as a fugitive, they would leave our several employments to come to his assistance. Two months later, at a statewide meeting of colored citizens at Columbus, the fugitive slave law was denounced as an outrage upon humanity. Boston Negroes held a protest meeting of a resolute and enthusiastic character at the Belknap Street Church on October 4, 1850. Following a series of addresses of a most emphatic type, a resolution was adopted pledging its sponsors to resist unto death any attempt upon their liberties. But some of the fugitives who were present expressed the wish for a large-scale public expression of support. These former slaves were apprehensive, having witnessed the departure and anticipating the impending departure of others of their kind. Ten days later, such a reassurance meeting was held at Faneuil Hall, an appropriate site. The call to the meeting had been signed by Josiah Quincy, former mayor of Boston and 340 other white abolitionists. With hundreds milling outside the packed hall, the meeting allayed any fears as to the abolitionists' support in defying the law. On the platform, the presiding officer, Charles Francis Adams, was flanked by Richard Henry Dana, substituting for the ailing Josiah Quincy, Theodore Parker, Wendell Phillip, Frederick Douglass, Charles Lennox Raymond, and runaways William and Ellen Craft. After stating the purpose of the meeting, Adams called upon Douglass to state the conditions of the colored people under this new act of oppression. Arising amid an ovation, the much-sought-after orator and former slave did not mince words. Boston Negroes, he said, had vowed to die rather than return to bondage. We must be prepared, should this law be put into operation, to see the streets of Boston running with blood. 
As if to bear out his assertion, Douglas recited the stories of fugitives who had exhibited unusual daring and courage. Then he asked the audience whether it would permit slaveholders to seize a Negro in Boston. Faneuil Hall's rafters echoed to the cry of no. Douglas closed on a personal note, saying that a rumor had reached Rochester, where he lived, that a group of slave hunters were after him and would visit his home. He had resolved to meet them, and as his house was rather small and the party probably rather large, he went up to a trap door in the attic in order to receive them one at a time. This forceful address set the tone for the remaining speeches and actions. Two resolutions were adopted, one calling for the repeal of the fugitive slave law and the other proclaiming that constitution or no constitution, we will not allow a fugitive slave to be taken from Massachusetts. A 50-member committee of vigilance was empowered to set up an office to give advice and assistance to fugitive slaves. I am happy to state, wrote Douglas the following morning, that the public meeting held here last night had done much toward quieting the colored people. As it turned out, this optimism was shattered by an occurrence the very next day. Two agents of Dr. Robert Collins of Macon, Georgia, owner of William and Ellen Craft, had arrived in Boston and obtained warrants for their arrest. Wrote Douglas in a hurried dispatch to his weekly, Mr. Craft is armed and resolved to stand his ground, and in less than an hour blood may flow in the streets of Boston. No blood was shed, but not because Kraft was unarmed. The clergyman, Theodore Parker, had inspected his weapons, although confessing that it was rather a new business for him. But Parker's analysis bore a professional ring. His powder had a good kernel, and he kept it dry. His pistols were of excellent proof, the barrels true and clean. The trigger went easy. The caps would not hang fire at the snap. I tested his poniard. The blade had a good temper, stiff enough, yet springy withal. The point was sharp. When Henry I. Bowditch offered to drive Kraft across town, the former slave agreed upon condition that Bowditch arm himself. The two drove in Bowditch's buggy, Kraft with a revolver in one hand and a pistol in the other. The two agents of Collins were told that they had better get out of Boston, and one of them heeded the advice. However, the Crafts decided that they too would leave. Upon the advice of well-wishers, they hastened out of the country, having received $250 from the Boston Vigilance Committee to pay their passage to England. But the attending excitement did not die down. The Crafts episode proved to be but one in a highly dramatic series involving the rendition of runaways. Defiance of the fugitive slave law became a new commandment to abolitionists throughout the North. The rescue of slaves who had been taken in custody did not begin in 1850, however. It was something that Negroes had been doing for nearly two decades. In the early summer of 1833, a group of Detroit Negroes rescued two slaves, wounding the sheriff in the process and leading the mayor to issue a call for federal troops. In the following spring, several Negroes in Philadelphia were sent to the penitentiary for an attempt to seize a slave from the police, the court having authorized his delivery to his master. Late in July 1836, Boston was the scene of a rescue which came to be known as the Abolition Riot. Two slaves, Eliza Small and Polly Ann Bates, 
were claimed as runaway slaves belonging to John B. Morris of Baltimore and brought to court. While the attorney for Morris was addressing the judge, someone in the spectator's section shouted, Go! Go! Whereupon some colored people rushed to the bench and bore the prisoners down the courthouse steps and shoved them into a waiting carriage. A colored woman of great size, who scrubbed floors for a living, threw her arms around the neck of one officer, immobilizing him. Eliza and Polly were never recaptured, and their abettors went scot-free, although Sheriff C.P. Sumner, father of Charles Sumner, was criticized for permitting such a breach of the peace. In Chicago, in October 1846, while the case of two runaway slaves from Missouri was in progress in court, a crowd of Negroes and their white sympathizers gathered around the officers and carried the slaves away. At Pittsburgh, a year later, a group of Negroes seized a runaway from two Virginia constables who had placed him under arrest. Up to 1850, the rescuing of fugitive slaves had been a business conducted almost exclusively by Negroes. The fugitive slave law of that year brought an influx of new blood into the work. This the Negro abolitionists welcomed heartily, but they did not use it as an excuse to retire to the sidelines. The Shadrach rescue is a case in point. An employee at the Cornhill Coffee House in Boston, Fred Wilkins, or Shadrach as he was popularly known, was seized at noon on February 15, 1851, and rushed to the courthouse with his waiter's apron still on. The news spread as if with wings, the Negro residential section being nearby. Five lawyers, including Robert Morris, a Negro, had just succeeded in obtaining a court delay to prepare for the defense when the rescue took place. A group of some 50 Negroes pressed into the courtroom, lifted Shadrach in the air, and bore him to the street. His clothes half torn off, Shadrach was placed in a carriage, and soon the rescued and the rescuers were moving away like a black squall. There was no pursuit, the seizure having been so sudden and unexpected. Taking refuge in Canada, Shadrach was beyond the reach of American law. But some of his rescuers did not escape legal action. On February 18, 1851, President Fillmore issued a special proclamation ordering that proceedings be commenced against the aiders or abettors in this flagitious offense. Robert Morris and Lewis Hayden were among those indicted for complicity in the rescue. Neither was ever sentenced. On June 16, 1851, the jury trying Hayden reported that it had been unable to reach a verdict. Five months later, the Morris case came to an end. The federal authorities had tried to charge him with treason, but the grand jury had him bound over for a misdemeanor. On November 11, 1851, the jury that heard the case, United States versus Robert Morris, returned a verdict of not guilty. Boston had two cases of runaways being sent back to slavery, but in each instance the fugitive slave law won a clouded victory at best. Early in April 1851, while the abolitionists were still in the pleasant afterglow of the Shadrach rescue, Thomas Sims, a fugitive from Georgia, was seized. Sims was rushed to the courthouse, a gloomy granite building that the federal authorities had to use as a jail, Massachusetts law preventing the use of state facilities for fugitive slave purposes. Legal efforts to free Sims were unsuccessful. 
A plot to effect his escape was equally aborted. Leonard A. Grimes visited Sims and told him that a mattress would be placed outside his window at a certain hour and that he was to jump and land on it and be spirited away. But before the scheme could be put into operation, the courthouse authorities put bars on every window. Taking additional precautions, especially to secure the doorways, they placed an iron chain around the building, already encircled by a hundred policemen. Shortly before sunrise on April 13th, Sims was marched to the Long Wharf to be shipped back to slavery. Despite the early hour, 100 abolitionists were present, marching solemnly behind a cordon of policemen three times their number. As Sims, tear-streaked but erect, marched up the gangplank, someone cried out, Sims, preach liberty to the slaves. The sorrowing abolitionists made their way back to the anti-slavery office, pausing on State Street at the spot where the black Crispus Attucks fell in the Boston Massacre of March 5, 1770 an event signaling the Revolutionary War. Sims was gone, but he left behind more than the coat he wore on the day he was seized, as prized as it became among abolitionists. His seizure gave to the recently reorganized Vigilance Committee a reason for being, thus attracting new supporters and swelling its coffers. Many of its meetings were held at the home of Lewis Hayden, in 1851, the committee assisted 69 fugitives of record. It had on its payroll 49 Negroes who harbored slaves pending their final disposition. John S. Rock, then practicing medicine rather than law, was paid by the committee for his services to sick fugitives. Despite the efforts of Boston abolitionists, white and black, a runaway slave was taken from the city in the spring of 1854. This was the celebrated Anthony Burns, who had learned to read and write in slavery, having had a kindly disposed master. Late in May, 1854, Burns was arrested as a fugitive slave and put in irons. Two days later, an attempt was made to storm the courthouse and seize Burns, but the attack was repulsed, one of the deputies, however, being shot and killed. During the following week, while the city awaited the commissioner's decision, feeling ran high. Beg our colored friends to bear and forbear, wrote John Greenleaf Whittier. Oh, let them beware of violence. The black people thronged around the courthouse, showing their sympathy by watching around the clock. Burns needed sympathy, as United States Commissioner Edward G. Loring had returned a verdict in favor of his master. Richard Henry Dana and Leonard Grimes hastened to the courthouse to be with the prisoner and attempt to raise his spirits. Later that day, many shops were hung in black, and a huge coffin was strung over State Street. Our worst fears are realized, wrote 16-year-old Charlotte Fortin in her diary for June 2, 1854. A cloud seems hanging over me, over all our persecuted race, which nothing can dispel. One thing remained, to get Burns from the courthouse to the wharf to be put aboard a revenue cutter that was bound for Virginia. From the courthouse door, a loaded gun was mounted, and from the courthouse to the wharf, the streets were lined with police. In the center of the armed posse marched Burns. He had expected to have Dana and Grimes walking beside him, but the marshal of the posse had gone back on his word to permit such an arrangement. 
50,000 spectators witnessed the procession as it made its way past buildings draped in black. One of these viewers was a good-looking young Negro girl whose teeth were clenched and whose eyes were tearful. Samuel Gridley Howell attempted to console her, saying that Burns would not be hurt. Hurt, she said, I cry for shame that he will not kill himself. Oh, why is he not man enough to kill himself? Charlotte Fortin expressed the belief that very few clergymen would speak out against the cruel outrage on humanity represented by the rendition of Burns. The fearless Theodore Parker could be numbered in that select company, preaching a sermon which asserted that in the wicked week of 1854, Massachusetts was one of the inferior counties of Virginia and Boston but a suburb of Alexandria. It is hardly surprising that when William J. Watkins had heard Parker six months earlier, he had come to the conclusion that no man preached more truth. The rendition of Anthony Burns left the abolitionists frustrated and angry, but its sequel was more to their liking. The revulsion of feeling throughout Massachusetts prompted the legislature to pass a more comprehensive personal liberty law in 1855, one which practically made the fugitive slave law a dead letter in the Bay State. Public opinion was changing, with abolitionists coming to be regarded less as traitors and more as patriots. Moreover, Burns remained a slave for less than a year. His new master, unlike his predecessor, was willing to set him at liberty for a price. With money raised in abolitionist circles, Leonard A. Grimes went to Baltimore to complete the transaction and accompanied Burns back to the free states and a joyous welcome. Shortly thereafter, he entered Oberlin, where he remained for two years before enrolling at the Fairmount Theological Seminary at Cincinnati. Except in the Far West, the defiance of the fugitive slave law was widespread. The locale of slave rescues ranged from Massachusetts to the Middle Atlantic states and those bordering the Great Lakes and known collectively as the Old Northwest. Three representative examples of slave recaptures may be briefly noted, including the typical role played by black activists. In New York, the most celebrated instance of the law's defiance was the rescue of William Henry on October 1, 1851 at Syracuse. A muscular mulatto who went by the name Jerry, he was known to be a runaway, but his conduct had been above reproach, and his employer, C.P. Williston, had found no complaint with his work as a cooper. Seized and taken to the federal commissioner's office, Jerry was in the process of being indicted when he slipped his guard and dashed out of the building and down the street. But being manacled, he was caught by the police, and after a stiff fight, the battered and disheveled prisoner was returned to the commissioner's office. The news of the incident spread rapidly, and within a few hours the abolitionists had formulated a rescue plan. Shortly after eight o'clock that evening, a group of men dashed into the police office, overwhelmed the guards by sheer numbers, battered down the door to the room Jerry was in, and took him. The first persons reaching him were two Negroes, Peter Hollenbeck and William Gray, the latter a runaway. Jerry was first taken to the home of a colored man where his shackles were removed. Then, to avoid suspicion, he was removed to the home of a white friend. Here he remained in hiding for five days before beginning his journey to Kingston, Ontario. Someone had to face the music 
and the federal government proceeded to indict 18 of the rescuers. Samuel Ringgold Ward, who claimed to have assisted in filing off Jerry's chains, hastened to Montreal. From this retreat, he wrote to George Whipple of the American Missionary Association, offering his services in the Canadian field. Another equally well-known black abolitionist, Germain W. Loguen, also made his way to Her Majesty's dominions. Loguen took the step in response to his wife's urgings. Two months later, on December 2, 1851, he wrote to Governor Hunt requesting protection should he return to Syracuse. Along with Loguen, four other Negroes were indicted, Prince Jackson, William Thompson, Harrison Allen, and Enoch Reed. Only three of the 18 rescuers were put on trial, and only one of these, Enoch Reed, was found guilty. He died pending an appeal, which he would have undoubtedly won. The Jerry rescue, in common with others of its kind, had great significance to abolitionists. They did not propose to let it die. Annually, until the Civil War, the reformers in western New York commemorated October 1st as Jerry Rescue Day. At the first anniversary, typical of those which followed, some 2,500 abolitionists came together, including William H. Topp, Frederick Douglass, William G. Allen, and the short-time emigrant Germain W. Loguen. White participants included Daniel Drayton of the Pearl, Samuel J. May, William Lloyd Garrison, and suffragists Lucretia Mott and young Lucy Stone. The speeches that lacked eloquence were not wanting in earnestness. Perhaps the palm went to a practiced scene-stealer. Frederick Douglass gave us some of the thunder of the gods, wrote William G. Allen. Some say that his was the speech of the morning, but I must confess that my heart palpitated toward Lucy, added that ever-gallant youthful professor of Belle Lettre. The attempted rendition of Jerry took place less than a month before the far more upsetting and highly publicized Christiana riot, the first defiance of the fugitive slave law resulting in bloodshed. To Christiana, a town in southern Pennsylvania, came Edward Gorsuch on September 11, 1851, from bordering Maryland in search of his four escaped slaves. Gorsuch and his party of six went to the home of William Parker, whom he suspected of harboring one or more of the fugitives. Himself a runaway from Maryland, Parker was in no mood to release an alleged slave, a feeling shared by the other Negroes in the town. Still vivid in their memory was the midnight seizure of a Negro six months previously, his abductors, a slave-hunting band known as the Gag Gang, having produced no warrant. When Gorsuch demanded that Parker permit him to enter the house, the latter's wife, Eliza Ann, herself a former runaway, blew a large dinner horn, a signal which summoned some two dozen Negroes to the scene. Soon an exchange of shots took place, resulting in the death of Gorsuch and the wounding of his son. Thereupon the outnumbered besiegers, already in no mood to press matters, withdrew. Forty-five Marines and a civil posse of fifty men were dispatched to restore order. The acting Secretary of State, W.S. Derrick, assured the Governor of Maryland that the President deplored this violation of the rights of the citizens of his state and that the federal government would exercise all its powers in bringing the offenders to book. This book is continued at this point on the other side of this cassette. Please reverse or turn the cassette over now.